The cat on your sofa is different from the cat who hunts the fields on your farm. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, May 2nd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we explore the evolution of the cat. From Viking ships to Egyptian tombs, from cat communication to why you shouldn't feed your pet first thing in the morning, we talk with the author of a new scientific exploration of our favorite felines. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We explore the potential of getting the right seller in the room with the right buyer, even if that buyer is halfway across the globe. Plus, a South Dakotan returns from the U.S. southern border with thoughts on how to respond to people in need. Sister Teresa Ann Wolf returns to the program. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Your future health care provider or your children's future provider could be walking the halls of Spearfish High School right now. If that's the case, they're probably a member of a growing chapter at the school. Health Occupations Students of America, or HOSA, Future Health Professionals, has planted a flourishing chapter at Spearfish High. Christine Van Osdel is the school nurse and HOSA advisor, and she's with me now from SDPB's Sue W. White Studio at Black Hill State University. Christine, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we talk about HOSA, tell us a little bit about your healthcare journey. How did you end up being a school nurse? Was there an experience in high school that uh, invited you into the room? Um, I kind of personally stumbled into nursing and not having anybody in healthcare in my family. It was a new experience and um, didn't have the best experience when I started. I didn't have support, didn't know what was going on. Um, and then I actually dropped out of nursing for about 10 years. Um, a few experiences happened and decided to renew my license. And then just with everything in life, I grew a passion for community health nursing. Um, so school nursing aligned perfectly with that. And so I've been in this job for just one year, my first year as a school nurse, and I love it. So is it a stretch to say that that experience of not getting the support you needed motivated you to give that kind of support to future healthcare providers? Most definitely. I think that there's um, a major lack of understanding with our high school students of just the vast array of medical professional opportunities in healthcare. Um, typically, people think of a nurse and a doctor, mm -hmm. which is incredible and very much needed, but there's so many other players on the team. So I love being able to tell them about that and let yeah. them experience it. And students are finding that out. Tell us a little bit about what HOSA is because it's also a, a doorway to comp competitive gatherings. What's that all about? Yeah, so um, we meet twice a month, and it's actually a global student organization, which I didn't know when I jumped into it. South Dakota has 42 chapters and a total of 1,100 members. Um, we started this year. We have 19 students, um, and we do everything from fundraisers, community events, service projects, but the big kicker is um, challenging students. They have to participate in at least one competitive event at our state conference. Um, there are six different categories, just a vast array of things that they can do. And so this requires them to take a lot of their personal time outside of school and often utilize members in our community to gather information and education about their projects and the exams that they'll be taking. So, 
This is about the future. You know, it's a pipeline in many ways, but it's also about engagement. And coming out of the pandemic, these kids have been through a lot. Does it keep kids, like the football team, like the theater uh, performance, does it keep them engaged in school, wanting to show up, wanting to be part of a group? Oh, they have just blown me away, yes, mm -hmm. for sure. They've been so excited and um, very self-motivated, which is what HOSA is about, being student-led. But the, I was just shocked at how much time and energy and passion they put into this last year, especially when we didn't know a lot going into it. We're brand new to it. And they just dove right in and went above and beyond. So they are very motivated. Are there scholarships or pathways to get to the university level once they graduate? What is that handoff like? Yeah, HOSA does a great job of putting resources in their hands. Um, not only scholarships, yes, we had one of our students receive one of the scholarships at the state convention, um, but also other opportunities, trainings, um, internships, and courses. There's one over the summer that our students are looking into going. The West River um, Health Science Center has provided us with opportunities for scrubs camps and different training health education camps that they have. So HOSA just puts those opportunities in front of us. All right, 19 students now. Uh, tomorrow, probably much more at the Spearfish <laughs> High School. Christine Van Osdell, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Twenty-five organizations across the state came together to create one entity. South Dakota Trade is a new association seeking to help organizations navigate the ins and outs of doing business across international borders. I talked with Luke Lindbergh, South Dakota Trade's newly appointed president and CEO, yesterday. We have a group of businesses that came together to uh, say it's time we bring South Dakota's products all around the world in a more systematic and robust way. And so we're building on the work of my colleague, Rock Nelson, who's been at this for the last 25 years or so, honestly, providing companies with consulting and helping them strategically think about where they can ship their products overseas and what markets would be accessible to them and how to solve their international trade problems. And so these 25 organizations came together and said, I think we need to take this to the next level. And that's really what we're excited about um, with relaunching South Dakota Trade, as it's now being called, uh, is a chance to amplify Rock's previous efforts, but really take our organization and do some things that are new and different, and I think position our state to be more competitive in the global economy. How competitive are we now? Are we behind the curve? Yeah, our state's 48th out of 50 or so, and depending on what li list you look at in terms of exports. Uh, when it comes to agricultural exports, we are second in the nation with respect to ag exports per capita. So there are some, some highlights there, some bright spots. But overall, we, we have some work to do. Uh, to position ourselves more effectively. And so I think, uh, you know, this is obviously an outputting of, uh, of where we stand today. I want to talk about the response here, but first the obstacles. What are some of the obstacles in transitioning a South Dakota business to capitalize on export? Yeah, I think, I think what I talk about a lot is people, we, we don't really have a culture of international trade here, yeah. right? Even if you look at our ag exports, a lot of times the, we grow the crops here and then we might ship them down to Iowa or Nebraska to get processed, and uh, that gets exported from there. Um, so that, that really that value-added piece in the ag space. And generally speaking, you know, without this 
kind of robust entity in place, I think on the manufacturing side and in some other areas like financial services, we really haven't had a, a group that's been bringing South Dakota exporters together for a while. And that cultural piece, if I'm a company that wants to start exporting, if I don't have some friends to talk to or fellow business owners and people that I can converse with and get to know, how do I do this the right way? I think that's been a big missing piece and a big hurdle for our state is to uh, create that culture that says, I can do this, I know how to do this, and I have the right team to support me as I go through that process. And that that's really the, the organization that we're trying to to, uh, to fill or that gap is to be that first call that people make when they say, hey, I want to grow my business overseas. I want to find a new market. We're going to be their partner to help them do that. How much of international trade is relationship-based? Yeah, my, my favorite quote is that the, the most likely chance of success for creating a new international trade opportunity is to put a willing buyer and a willing seller in the same, same room together. Yeah. Uh, and so a big piece of it is fostering those relationships. Now, there's a lot of tools out there that can help people find those partners overseas, uh, you know, distribution channels and things that are different. Even the U.S. Department of Commerce, you know, who has uh, personnel in offices in 70 countries around the world, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of access to, to those opportunities to build those relationships. You just have to be thoughtful and, and really, quite frankly, know that they're out there to help support you. Yeah. What makes a good, strong relationship? To me, it's it's a lot about uh, getting to know one another and learning to trust each other. And then I think the business opportunity just comes from that. But it's being culturally aware. And honestly, I think most people have a lot of fun when they do these international business opportunities because they get to learn about somebody who may be different than themselves. But yet at the end of the day, it's mutually beneficial. We create certain things here in America and in South Dakota that maybe are not made in other places and vice versa. And so the free trade of goods and services benefits everybody that's involved because otherwise we would be procuring it or making it right here and vice versa for them. So let's talk about some of the opportunities here, especially the STEP grant. Tell me a little bit about that program. It's a program funded by the U.S. Small Business Administration. It's called the State Trade Expansion Program. And it is a key tool for exporters all across the country to grow their business. So whether you're new to exporting, which is a term we use often for companies that really haven't embarked on an export journey yet, or whether you are uh, looking to grow into new markets, um, the STEP grant is there to reimburse you for some of those expenses. And so our state program was just awarded $175,000. There's one organization in each state that gets designated by the governor to be the host of that a particular program, and, and we received that designation from Governor Noem this time around. Uh, and so we will be able to give out awards to companies up to $5,000 to support their export journeys. And that could be everything from translating their website or attending a trade mission that we're planning. It, it could be uh, attending a different conference overseas or uh, taking some export education coursework to help get your program or your staff ready to be uh, compliant and know how to market themselves overseas. So it's a, it's a pretty diverse program that allows us really to, uh, to customize an approach to each of our individual small businesses. What is a trade mission and how do you make an effective one? Again, I'll go back to my comment about putting a willing buyer and a willing seller in a room together. So yeah. to me, that's the most important aspect of a trade mission is to facilitate those direct buyer to seller contacts. And whether that's bringing trade delegations here, we just had a group of uh, business people from a variety of markets around the world here in South Dakota last week. 
we hosted them. There was folks from South Africa, from China, from India, um, the UK. It was a, a, a broad delegation of folks that came here, and we, we were able to expose them to some of our businesses, you know, right here in, in the Sioux Falls market. Um, but more broadly, when we take those trips overseas as well, it's coordinating company-to-company visits or participating in those kind of conferences and things that are overseas that we can really, uh, again, you know, expose the right types of companies to the right kinds of buyers. And so it's 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 uh, putting together the right delegation that we know is going to be a high likelihood of success when we get over there. We have been through a pandemic. We've been through American political division. We have seen Russia invade Ukraine. We are watching what might happen in China. So this is, as always, I mean, some of this is as old as time itself, but there are uncertainties about international trade. Help somebody who has been hesitant because they see how quickly the world can change to figure out how to do this in a way that is sustainable for their business. Laura, you're exactly right. To, to me, as a practitioner in the international trade space, uh, I think that this has become a topic that's become a kitchen table topic, which is yeah. pretty amazing to me, given that most people would fall asleep just a few years ago if we wanted to have a conversation about supply chains, for example. Um, and so I, I think that there are absolutely uh, people that w- are nervous about this, but also people that see it as an opportunity right? When, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, as an example, um, well, Russia and Ukraine are the uh, number one and number two top growers of sunflowers in the world. Well, North Dakota and South Dakota are the number one and number two top growers of sunflowers in the United States. Um, and so I think there are opportunities that are created during these windows of time uh, around geopolitical tensions and things changing. Uh, but you have to have somebody who knows how to coach you through and walk you through those opportunities. And that strategic piece is something that I think our, our team at South Dakota Trade is pretty well positioned to help companies evaluate and think through. And certainly, if we don't know the answers, we know people that do or can help put you in a room to have those conversations to make sure that you are building that resiliency into your, your business. Are there people you just won't do business with? Of course. Yeah, I mean, there, there's company countries uh, that are on and con- uh, companies that are on the sort of do not do business lists, like I- Iran, as an example, or North Korea, where they're sanctioned countries, uh, and we, you know, you're not permitted to sell your product to them. But also, there are certain you know companies that have dual use functions, and maybe they sell military products to certain uh, malign foreign actors or involved in terrorist organizations and things. So there are, there are a number of organizations and, and, and groups out there that you have to be careful about, but that's very, very small, you know, list in the, in the way minority. And, and the reality is that there's a lot more opportunity to do business with the right types of people than there are to find your way into the, the wrong side of the business. Give me a success story, a South Dakota success story. Yeah. I like to talk about, uh, our small business, uh, exporter of the year, this year is Rough Land Kennels. They make these performance kennels in T, South Dakota. They're the industry leader in their segment. They sell them at Shields and Bass Pro Shops, but they've also grown their exports pretty dramatically in recent years, and it's still a relatively small part of their business, but their team is really excited about what that opportunity has provided to them, and they see it as a huge growth market for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think they, I think the number was last year they had a 30% increase in their export volumes, and so we're excited to see them grow and continue to be a good partner with us. Yeah. 
Any final thoughts that you want people to know about South Dakota trade? If you're considering exporting or you haven't done it already or you're, a, you know, sort of uh, getting your feet wet, I think we have some programs that can really train your employees on how to do this effectively. And so please reach out to us because in, in my uh, estimation, the best way for a company to get export ready is to, one, learn the tool, the sort of the training of the task at hand. How do I market myself? How do I complete all the compliance paperwork, et cetera. But then we're also pairing that with data and analysis that says this is where your product is most likely to be successful in selling. The U.S. Small Business Administration came out with a report recently that said 41% of U.S. small businesses are likely exportable products or services. And so People often think it's only manufacturing and ag. In reality, we have financial services companies in South Dakota, trust companies, for example, that are right. selling their services overseas. Uh, or, you know, tourism is considered an export if we're flying folks in from overseas. So there's, there's this is beyond just the traditional sort of thought around uh, manufacturing and agriculture. So our, our, our organization is ready to help you get the training you need to be successful, but also help you on the consulting side to put together the right strategy that allows you to, uh, to pick those markets and, and hopefully get your sales up. That's my conversation with Luke Lindbergh. Luke is the president and CEO of the newly formed South Dakota Trade. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. For most of the month of March, Sister Teresa Ann Wolf was at the U.S. southern border with a group called Mission Border Hope. She spent time on both sides of the border to care for the needs of displaced people. Sister Teresa is a social justice advocate with the Mother of God Monastery in Watertown, and she returns to the program today. Sister Teresa, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. I have never forgotten the conversation we had the last time you were here. So your words are so powerful to people today. So just an extra thank you for coming and and telling these stories. We really appreciate it. I want to start thank with you. I want to start with um, the people that you met. What are some of the reasons that they are displaced? First of all, well, the people that I talked to. It's the usual issues of poverty, uh, government corruption, terrorism, um, control by gangs, um, uh, personal um, desperation, uh, desperately hoping to find a place to raise their families in a safe place and to be able to feed them. How are they surviving? What did you see? Some of them that, that I talked to, they, they um, sacrificed almost everything to hire a smuggler, which we call a coyote, to bring them across, um, to connect them with uh, a sponsor, or they applied for refugee status. Some of them uh, borrowed money for the, for the trip. Um, some of them left, uh, some of them like sold family uh, property to be able to um, finance the trip. Mm. How are they surviving the journey? What conditions do they come to you in? Um, the people that I talked to said that it was um, a terrible, a terrifying 
and an anxious, risky time. I talked with one Peruvian uh, a woman, and she talked with us while we were working in the kitchen, and she came in to warm a bottle for her baby. And she said that they put all their life savings into this, into this trip for their, it was their, um, she and her husband and I think two or three children. And she said, just because that you pay uh, a big fee to a, to a smuggler does not mean that you will be safe and taken care of. She said, smugglers keep making threats. Uh, there are robberies, uh, attacks. And she told us the sad story of one young girl, a teenager, who had run out of funds to pay bribes and protection money. And so she said, they, meaning the Mexican authorities, they all raped her. Hmm. And now she said the girl is is traumatic, is traumatized and sad and 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 there's nobody to help her. She was in the center for maybe a few hours, and then she went on to uh, wherever her sponsors or family was waiting for her. And who knows if she had the courage to say anything or if she was able to say anything or what happened to that girl as she settled in the United States. And sad to say, these are very common stories of women especially who are robbed and raped and sometimes killed. Sister Teresa, one of the things I notice about, well, there's multiple things, but let's start here. Sometimes there's a lack of awareness. Sometimes there's a lack of outrage. Sometimes there is a hopelessness about what can be done. So talk to me about response. How are people on the border that you met responding to the need in ways that you thought were effective, even if not completely effective? What works? Well, I think basically a human, a human response, recognizing that these people are our brothers and sisters and are suffering terribly and that we can do something to help them. And so when I was working at Mission Border Hope, they survive on donations and and the support of um, volunteers and individual organizations and churches. And where I stayed at um, at um, the House for Missionaries, I met continuous groups coming from different churches in different parts of the state or of the country who came to offer their help uh, for a week or a few days and and also requesting, okay, what more? What more can we do? What can we do to comfort and help these people now? For example, I worked in the kitchen to help provide uh, an, um, a, a meal, breakfast, um, so that they had a, a few minutes to eat a meal and uh, relax a little bit before they moved on to the next step in, in the process. And also, when I had time, 
I was advised that part of the healing that will take place with these people who have been traumatized and terrorized and sometimes almost starved to death is a chance to say their story to a sympathetic listener. Mm. And so when I had time, uh, because I speak Spanish, or sometimes just as I was uh, cleaning off the tables, I would spend a few minutes to talk with, with, with them, mostly women, and say, you know, and say, how are you doing? Um, how are you feeling now? Um, how, can, how can we help you further? And um, it was not much, but I was um, happy that I could do that much. In addition to um, donations of food and clothing and some and um, um, practical things like like phone cards, because as these people came, some of them, as one, um, as two young men told me in frustration and anger, they said, we have been beaten and robbed in every country that we have come to, come through. And now we're here and we have no money to even pay for our bus trip to the airport in San Antonio so that we can fly to our sponsors. We don't even have the money to call our sponsors to send us to send us uh, money. And I, I, all I could do was I said, yes, I know this is, this is sad. And I could not, I could not give them a the positive answer, but I knew that the people at mission border hope would find the money for them would provide if necessary, you know, food and the money for the bus for um, the bus trip to <clears throat> to San Antonio. I think that was like fifty dollars, something like that. If I interview a politician and I say we're going to talk about the crisis at the U.S. southern border, most likely they will talk to me about truckloads of fentanyl drug busts, smugglers, uh, you know, criminal elements, people sneaking in to create criminal elements. What would you respond if that's how they spoke to you? What would you want them to hear? Well, no doubt that is happening. We hear about the, drug, the drugs on the border. But by and large, the immigrants who are, who are asking for refuge, who are crossing the border, they're risking their lives. And they um, they want they want to live, and so I would say we can help those people, and the politicians should and could concentrate on immigration reform. You know, Congress is responsible for immigration reform, and I have been telling, reminding our senators. And, and a representative about that. And everybody knows our immigration system is broken. It has been. We need major reform. And 
Congress is responsible for that. You know, they can blame other people. They can blame the drug cartels. They can blame our president. But Congress is responsible. And there seems to be not the will for real immigration reform. What is our moral imperative if we're not in Congress? What is, for people who are listening, um, maybe they're motivated to make a donation. Maybe they're motivated to... Uh, find a way to sit in mission with people, whether it's by traveling south or by waiting here for people who make their way north. What are other ways that you want to talk to people about welcoming the stranger? I, I think um, basically to begin with, to, to, um, to recognize these are our brothers and sisters. Um, I always refer, you know, to... Um, Matthew 25, you know, those verses 31 to 44, where it talks about the judgment of the nations, you know, and Jesus said, you know, I would, among other things, you know, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was a stranger and you took me in. And that, I think, speaks to all of us. These are strangers that we have an obligation as members of the same family to welcome. So I think basic is a, a basic stance of hospitality, of love and welcome. And then on the more practical level, we know that the South Dakota economy depends on an um, increased number of workers. We depend on immigrant labor, and our communities who are uh, aware are beginning to advocate with our government, especially with the state government also, but also with Congress, to welcome the immigrants, if nothing else, for economic reasons. If we do not, we will, our economy will go down the drain. And so in, in, in um, different communities, you know, there are groups um, advocating and uh, basically beginning with information and education. So in, um, in Watertown, you know, we have, we have the, um, the Glacial Lakes Multicultural Center, and we have another group that began um, – with, um, like, Freedom's Haven, welcoming new Americans, welcoming new Americans to um, get them started, um, and give, them a, give them a hand so that they can settle in, um, become integrated in the community, and get a job. Everybody who wants to, who, immigrants want to come to work. They want a job. They don't want handouts. They want a job and a home and uh, a safe place for their children and to send them to school. So it, it's, a, it's like a win-win situation. We have immigrants who are begging to come to South Dakota to work and to pay taxes, to become integrated into the community. And... We need them. South Dakota wants to wants 
uh, more workers, and we want to welcome them and help them get settled in the community. Sister Teresa Ann Wolf, um, it is always a delight to hear your voice. Um, respect for the work that you do in the world and the, may, the way that you make us all think more deeply about our role in welcoming the stranger and um, what is happening sometimes outside of our sight. Um, so thank you very much. Please come back and talk to us in the future. I will, and thank you. Sister Teresa is with the Mother of God Monastery in Watertown. She recently returned. Um, she spent most of the month of March, in fact, at the U.S. southern border. The group that she was with was called Mission Border Hope. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Now let's talk about the mysteries and marvels of the modern cat. Jonathan Lassus is an evolutionary biologist and founding director of the Living Earth Collaborative. He set out to learn what science could tell us about the felines curled up at our feet and the complexities of cat behavior we are far from understanding. His latest book is called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. It is filled with both science and stories from the sonic imprint of the cat's meow to the wide-open future of cat evolution. I spoke with him this morning. Ever since I was a little boy, I have loved cats. Ever since we adopted a shelter cat to give to my dad when he was five for his birthday, I've just been crazy about cats. But I was also one of those boys who loved dinosaurs. I had all the plastic animals. I knew their names and so on. And as I grew up, I, I transferred that interest to living reptiles, to lizards and crocodiles and so on. And I went to school, and I studied zoology, and the more I learned, the more fascinated I became. And so I've, my entire career, I've been a zoologist studying lizards, how they function in the environment, how they evolve, and so on. And I've, of course, continued to love cats, but it never occurred to me to actually do anything scientifically with them. I didn't really think there was much interesting science being done on domestic cats. And then a few years ago, I discovered I was wrong, that people were studying domestic cats in the same way that I study lizards and my colleagues study lions and elephants and so on, using DNA analysis, uh, radio tracking, and so on. And then I had this idea I would teach a college class to students called the science of cats. And the idea is that I would, I would lure them in on cats, and then I would teach them how we study nature just using cats as the vehicle. And the course went really well. I think the, cat, uh, the students really liked it, and we had a lot of fun. And so then I said, well, maybe I'll write a book on the same subject. There are lots of people out there who, who are interested in cats, and science has, has ta taught us so much about where they came from, why they do what they do, what the future might be. Why not write a book for those people? And so that's how it came to happen. Is this book also an invitation for cat lovers to come into the world of science and find new ways of thinking about ecosystems and biodiversity and evolution. Absolutely, because uh, that's how we know what we know about cats is by using the methods of science. And so uh, that's what I, I write about in the book, not only all the great things we know about cats, but how we know them. Yeah. Or in some cases, things that we don't actually know, that we would like to know, but it are, is hard to study. That, you know, one of the, the frustrations in a way of this book is when you look on the Internet and you look up things about cats, 
there's a lot of information there that's either wrong or at least unactually documented. And mm -hmm. so uh, I spent a lot of time pouring through what we know to see what is the basis for these claims. How do we know these statements? And so, so that's the idea. Uh, the book talks about how we study nature, but it uses cats as the vehicle for that. And the scientific method, you know, for example, if you're trying to record a cat's meow and you pet it backwards and ruffle its fur to try to get it to elicit a sound, you might get bitten. So <laughs> yes, there there are some 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 uh, drawbacks. Tell us a little bit about these studies about cat communications. Why the meow? Well, so. You know, the, the meow is sort of the quintessential cat trait. When you think what a cat does, it meows. And cats meow to us. Anyone who has lived with a cat knows that the cat is trying to tell you something when it meows. Now, I always thought that cats meowed to each other to communicate, and so they were just including us in their social circle. But actually, scientists have shown that cats, living, it, cats usually don't meow to, to each other very much. It's something they do to us that they don't do to each other to a large extent. And so that suggests that meowing is a, a trait that evolved when cats were domesticated. Now, it turns out that all small species of, of felines, ocelots, bobcats, and so on, they all meow. So the domestic cat did not invent the meow, but they have changed the meow in ways that are more pleasing to our ears, to make the meow more pleasant sounding. And presumably that's to make them a more effective communicator with us, to make us like to hear them meowing. Um, and so that's how the, the, the cat has meowed. Now, they, cats have different meows in different contexts, and that's the study you were talking about. People were trying to figure out, is there a, uh, a universal cat language, if you will? Do all cats meow in a certain way when they want to be fed? or meow in a certain way when they're content? And the answer, it turns out, is no. That one cat, when it's uh, hungry, may meow in one way, may meow, and another one may meow very differently, mew. So they'll have different meows that mean the same thing. So you can't just hear a meow of any cat and say, oh, I know what that cat means by that. But people who live with cats, they actually can figure it out, that cats have evolved to be flexible, to, to learn with the people they live with how to communicate different, different intentions. And so they're actually quite sophisticated in adapting to, to learn to communicate with us. So if I recorded all of my cat's meows over a period of time, and then that cat got a new home, and that owner recorded all their meows, it might change over time? Because the new owner would respond to different tonalities? Is that now, too That is an interesting question that no one has researched, but I think it's very possible. I mean, there's two possibilities, that the cat has a set meow for different circumstances and the new owner would just figure it out. Yeah. But the other possibility is that the cat would start changing its meow. Say it has its meow when it's hungry, but the owner wasn't responding uh, correctly. I shouldn't say owner, the person the, person, the, person the cat lived with. Um, so the cat would start experimenting with other meows until they kind of came to an uh, understanding of what, what meow meant time to feed me. Yeah, and that gets to another important point of your book is that the, you know, hey, there's your next master's thesis. The amount of research that still could be done that we don't know about cats is wide open. There, it, that, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm surprised how much research there is, but there's so much more we don't know, even very basic aspects of cat life. Uh, there's so much that, that is, remains to be studied. 
Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the early, and I think we all feel like we have an understanding of cat domestication because of what we learned about Egypt. But then there are Viking cats, and then there's the theory that cats domesticated themselves, not the other way around. What interesting things did you find that weren't common knowledge about sort of the origin of domesticity for cats? Well, so uh, cats were certainly domesticated by 3,500 years ago in Egypt. We know that because of the paintings on tomb walls and inscriptions on buildings showing cats wearing collars and eating from a dish underneath the dining room table and going on family outings. So they were clearly domesticated by then. But what we don't know is it's commonly thought that domestication occurred in Egypt at that time. And we don't know if that's true or not, because perhaps it occurred elsewhere in the region, perhaps in Turkey, uh, perhaps earlier, and then just domestic cats arrived in Egypt in 3,500 years ago. In fact, the first association between people and cats is from a, a grave on the island of Cyprus near Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea uh, from 10,000 years ago or so, showing a person buried with all kinds of treasured objects like tools and okra, um, okra and a cat buried right next to the person, laid out very carefully. Mm. And moreover, African wildcats, the ancestor of the domestic cat, do not occur on Cyprus, so they must have been brought there by, the, by people. And so the suggestion is possibly domestic cats were, were domesticated 10,000 years ago, much earlier than the time in Egypt. But there's another possibility, and that possibility is that this cat was not a domestic cat. It was just an African wild cat that was tame, that was raised from a kitten, and so was a friendly animal. And we just don't know the answer. Was this just the very earliest stages when African wildcats were hanging out with people, or was this actually a domesticated animal? Now, people are actually studying this today by getting the DNA out of cat skeletons from archaeological sites and from cat mummies, which are really cool, from Egypt, and they're trying to find the genes uh, that indicate that domestication had occurred to find out when and where they first occurred. And, and uh, this is research that is currently going on using very sophisticated modern tools to look at DNA from thousands of year old specimens. And I think it's going to have some great findings in the next couple of years. Yeah. You talk about unowned cats versus, you know, pets versus wild cats. The future of cats and evolution really lies in the unowned cat, in the feral cat or the cat that is not living inside our house because of spaying and neutering of domestic pets, which is responsible. What's the future of the feline? Well, so... Um uh, kind of looking to the far future, if you will. Well, first let me say, as, as you mentioned, there are populations of feral cats living on every continent in the world except Australia. And this uh, is not a good thing in many places. These cats are disrupting the ecosystem and so on. Uh, but the fact is, it's happened. And there are some estimates that there are, are as many as 400 million feral cats around the world. And they live in very, in very different circumstances, on islands with pr their particular environments. They live in the hot deserts of the Australian outback. They live in very cold mountainous regions. Undoubtedly, these cats are evolving and adapting to where they live. That is undoubtedly going on right now. 
surprisingly, scientists haven't studied that, and I think it would be very fascinating to see how they are evolving even today, adapting to these new circumstances. But what I, what I like to say is that eventually humans will stop destroying the environment and get back in balance, and nature will recover. And when that happens, we can hope that tigers and lions and leopards will still be around, but there's no guarantee. Some of those species will be lost, but hopefully some will be around and they will recover and maybe start evolving and adapting. But what we do know for sure is there are going to be the descendants of domestic cats on every continent. They are great survivors. And so when humans you know, get in better balance with the environment, it will be those cats that kind of revive cat evolution. And those will be the ones that adapt to environments and eventually evolve to be new cat species. And so I think in a, in a positive sort of light, millions of years from now, maybe thousands of years, we will have lots of cat species. And I think most of them will be the descendants of today's domestic cats. Does biodiversity in cats matter in the same way we think of biodiversity in you know, birds or insects matter? Well, um, yes, in a number of ways, but probably because cats are an important part of the environment, of the natural environment. I mean, wild species of cats. Yeah. You know, lions and tigers are top predators, and top predators have a huge impact on the functioning of ecosystems. And even many, there are many small species of cats, and they too play an important role. So, yes, I think they are an important part of, uh, of biodiversity. And then there's Norman, <laughs> your cat. <Yeah. laughs> What did you learn about Norman that you, you know, didn't know before that you now you have a better relationship with him? Well, the, the, yeah. so it's Nelson is his Nelson, name. And, Nelson, Nelson, uh, sorry. He's at my foot right now. Uh, he is the world's <laughs> greatest cat. There can be no doubt about that. And among other things he does, so he is a, he's a breed of cat called a European Burmese, mm -hmm. and uh, they have been Select, they have been intentionally selected to be friendly, affectionate cats. And so that's why we, we got Nelson. Actually, we got another member of that breed for my father, who was 85 at the time, who needed a, a friendly cat. We couldn't get a rambunctious cat for him. Anyway, after we got Nelson as a kitten, uh, we bought him lots of toys to play with. And I was astonished one day when he started bringing the, the, the toys to me. He would walk all the way across the, the house carrying a toy in his mouth. He would drop it at my feet and then look up to me and basically say, it's playtime. And so I, I would play with him, but if I threw the, the toy across the room, he would madly dash across the room and get it and bring it back. He was basically fetching and doing that on his own. I never trained him to do that. Well, I was astonished. I had never heard of a cat doing these things, and I thought that, that he was amazing, the world's greatest cat, which, as I say, he is, but maybe for other reasons. Uh, you know, I thought of the fame and fortune, the Tonight Show, America's Got Talent, and so on. But then I uh, decided, well, maybe before doing all this, I should just check it out. And I, I looked up some surveys that scientists have conducted. It turns out that people report that about 20% of cats do what I just described. They will bring toys to the people they live with to play with, and they will fetch if you throw those toys. So this is just one of the traits that has evolved as the domestic cat became domesticated. Yeah. My cat, Spike, used to sit on my chest when I was sleeping and gently scratch my eyelids when she wanted me <laughs> nice. to, to wake up because she knew once that I opened them, then she would get fed. So Well, that, it, it is a mistake. <laughs> I don't know if you did this, but many people feed their cat 
as soon as they get up in the morning. Yeah. And so cats are very smart. They realize, <laughs> wake the person up because I'm hungry. And so, um, and so they learn to do that sort of thing. And there's more than one way to wake that person up. Well, This is true, exactly. Nelson, I am so sorry I got your name wrong. Thank you for the correction. The book is called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Lori. This has been a lot of fun, and Nelson does uh, accept your apology. <laughs> I talked with Jonathan Lassus this morning. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On the next In the Moment, South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley joins us for an update on state efforts to respond effectively when indigenous women disappear. Mike Card is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation, plus Pioneer Girl, The Path into Fiction. We preview the latest from the South Dakota Historical Society Press. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.